0: Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you along with us. Got a good show today. Going to be talking about uh, the season of Lent. Going to talk a little bit, uh, hopefully before the end of the program, about... The devotion to the passion, which we were talking about last week, I'm going to finish up on that, also going to be talking about the doctrine of indulgences. Yes, it uh, sounds funny to say that you should indulge yourself in Lent, but uh, uh, we are going to talk about uh, gaining indulgences and uh, beginning with what indulgences are not because there 's a whole lot of misinformation about indulgences out there, hopefully we're going to be able to clear that up for you uh, before we begin. However, as per usual, I want to talk about. The readings from the Sunday uh, that began this week, the second week of uh, Lent, and the second Sunday of Lent, and it is known as Reminiscere, right, from the first word of the introit, which is remember. The introit of Reminiscere Sunday asks God the grace to no longer fall into sin. Remember, O God, the bowels of Thy compassion and Thy mercies that are from the beginning of the world. And uh, going to the epistle now, which is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Brethren, we pray and beseech you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so also you would walk that you may abound the more. In other words, St. Paul is saying you learned from us how you should live in order to please God. So in the name of the Lord Jesus, I urge you to actually live that way. For you know what precepts I have given to you by the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, this is one of the, the most quoted verses uh, in the history of this program. That you know, it, it tells us that the will of God is not some inscrutable mystery because he's shown us how to live in order to be holy. He gives us the commandments and the beatitudes and the sacrament to help us be, co- be holy because that is his will for us our sanctification, our growth in holiness. Uh, St. Paul goes on, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles that know not God, and that no man overreach nor circumvent his brother in business, because the Lord is the avenger of all these things, as we have told you before and have testified. Now this is generally understood to mean that we should uh, avoid both sexual impurity and injustice in the way that we deal with others but in the original context saint paul is applying a general principle to a specific situation namely that these uh, early christian converts in thessalonica were getting married to close family members right which uh, of course for christians that's forbidden but such incest was um, allowed by the pagans because of their laws concerning inheritance primarily so, you know, it's an immoral practice of this kind of unlawful marriage often led to divorces and lawsuits, you know, you know other families trying to get their piece of the pie out when they want their fair share. So St. Paul wants the uh, Thessalonians to understand they can't behave this way and be good Christians. As he said, for God hath not, hath not called us to uncleanness, but unto sanctification in Christ, in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this goes for us too. Bottom line, God wants you to be holy, and he's given you the means to be holy, but you cannot be holy, in fact, you cannot even call yourself a devout Catholic if you ignore the moral teachings of the church. Okay, so Joe Bryden, Nancy Pelosi, call your office. Uh, especially in Lent, we should pray that we never be addicted to earthly lusts like the heathens that don't know God but rather that we would live in, in modesty and chastity and holiness in order to deserve the name of Christian. Now that's no nonsense. Now next up, the gospel for Reminiscere Sunday, which is the transfiguration. It's from Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9. At that time, Jesus, Jesus taketh unto him Peter and James and John his brother and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his garments became white as snow. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elias talking with him. And Peter answering said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. And as he was yet speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And lo, a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And the disciples, hearing, fell upon their face, and were very much afraid. And Jesus came and touched them, and said to them, Arise, and fear not. And they, lifting up their eyes, saw no one but only Jesus. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man, till the Son of Man be risen from the dead. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So, why was Jesus transfigured, as we call it, on, uh, before his disciples on Mount Tabor? Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas says, uh, Our Lord, after foretelling his passion to his disciples, had exhorted them to follow this path of his. Now, in order that anyone go straight along a road, he must have some knowledge of the end. Thus, an archer will not shoot the arrow straight until he first sees the target. In other words, the transfiguration shows us how our glorified bodies shall rise from the dead. And seeing a vision of this happy ending gives us something to shoot for and, some, and should encourage us to be patient in our trials and sufferings, because we know the end for which we are, uh, to which we are heading. So But why did Moses and Elias or Elijah uh, appear with our Lord? Well, Moses appeared as the representative of the old law, the old covenant, and Elias representing the prophets. They came to do him homage and to testify that Jesus is the long-awaited Savior, that he's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And now we know that, that uh, Elias was translated from this world without tasting death, right? He was assumed into heaven. And so he appeared in his own body. And, you know, and Jesus is showing us the, the, his body glorified. Now, but what about Moses? Well, actually, there is a Jewish tradition that the body of Moses was also assumed into heaven. Uh, in fact, the dispute between St. Michael the Archangel and the devil over the body of Moses that is uh, referred to in the letter of Jude is actually a reference to an apocryphal book called The Assumption of Moses. Uh, and I believe it's also related to the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 3, and, and the, the quote-unquote two witnesses whom Jesus will commission to prophesy in the last days. Who are the two witnesses? And some would, would uh, suggest it's Enoch and Elias because you're Elijah, because they were both... Um, translated into heaven right they were both assumed into heaven body and soul Uh, some people would say it's uh, we don't know they're figures from the future but there's a long-standing interpretation that the two witnesses represent the law and the prophets just like at the transfiguration and they're to be identified with Moses and Elijah and you know you read further in Revelation 11 John prophesies the miracles that the two witnesses will perform Verse 6 says they will have power to turn water into blood, which repeats the famous miracle of Moses in Exodus 7. Verse 5 says they will have power to destroy their enemies with fire, which corresponds to the confrontation between uh, Elias and the priests of Baal in 2 Kings. Further, the Jewish tradition expects both Moses and Elijah to return based on Malachi 4 verse 5 and Deuteronomy 18 verses 15 and 18. The letter of Jude, the fact that Moses and Elias both appeared with Jesus at the Transfiguration support this view. I mean, that gives New Testament support to that view. And there's one other thing that I'd point out, and that's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus from Luke 16. When Deves and Lazarus die, they both go to Sheol, right, to the land of the dead. Deves, the rich man, goes to the hell of the damned, and Lazarus, to Abraham's bosom, as our Lord says, a.k.a. the, the limbus patrum, right, the, the limbo of the fathers, there to await Jesus opening the gates of heaven. And Devas calls out to Abraham, "'Father, I beseech thee, send Lazarus to my father's house, that he may testify to my brethren, lest they also come into this place of torments.' But Abraham said to him, "'They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them.' But he said, "'No, Father Abraham, but if one went to them from the dead, they will repent.' Abraham said unto him, If they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if one rise again from the dead. Moses and Elias, the Law and the prophets, are the same two witnesses in this parable, at the Transfiguration, and in the end times. And in every case, those two witnesses point to Jesus. Our Lord Himself said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Amen, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the smallest part of a letter will pass from the law, until all things have been fulfilled, not one iota, not one jot or tittle. The church tells us that this passing away of heaven and earth is not the end of the world. The turning of the ages comes with the apocalyptic event of Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, and, and we to whom this gospel is addressed, whether that's Christians in the first century or the 21st, are living in the final age. Right? We, we are under the new and eternal covenant. The moral law, the natural law, is still written on the human heart, and the message of the prophets remains that the old sacrifices have been fulfilled by the one sacrifice of the Lamb of God which is made present on our altars in the Holy Mass. As it was then, so it is now, and so it shall be until the end. And that's no nonsense. Okay, uh, when we come back, we're going to start talking about uh, giving things up for Lent, right? The practice of Lent. And also we're going to be talking about um, not just Lenten practices, but um, also we'll be talking about indulgences. And then later we're going to talk about sacramentals. All things that can help us with our Lenten journey, okay? It's a time of purification for us right here on Earth, and uh, something that needs to be embraced and not simply endured, okay? Uh, also, I just want to tell you before we go to the break, uh, the Spiritual Warfare Conference is sold out. It's been sold out for some time, but they are going to do a live stream. So if you want to uh, be able to see it, or oh, wait a second, is is I don't want to t- talk out of terms. It's going to be a live stream of the Spiritual Warfare Conference, or are we going to do it, it may be a recording after? Sorry? It, okay, we're shooting for live, for sure recorded, and you can register for that at vmpr.org. Okay, when we come back with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic, so stay put, and we shall return. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Wild for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Once upon a time, a man was uh, walking home on a deserted street and a crisp March evening, and out of the shadows stepped a robber who pointed a gun. He said, uh, stick them up, your money or your life. And the man, it was a cold night, so he started to unbutton his overcoat so that he could reach in. Uh, to get his wallet and the robber noticed that he had a roman collar and he said oh i'm sorry father uh you know never mind i I can't rob you and the priest said um you know it's sad to see that the man was reduced to these circumstances he has compassion for him he says i'd like to give you something and the man said no no father uh i can't take anything from you he said well here let me give you a cigar i'll offer you a cigar and he said no father i I can't take it. And he said, no, I insist, take the cigar. And he said, no, Father, I'm sorry, I can't. I gave up smoking for Lent. <laughs> that's one of those kind of little classic stories that, you know, the, the point of the, the Lenten sacrifice is that it's a struggle against sin. And that is the thing that we should be giving up before we, we give up something legitimate, some legitimate pleasure, uh, because that's only to help us to have the strength to give up the things that we should not do. And we are now in the second full week of the season of Lent, AD 2023, and I just want to ask you a question. How are you doing? How's your Lenten sacrifice going? Because I know that most folks uh, don't keep their New Year's resolutions, and therefore it is not uncommon for Catholics to stumble when they give something up for Lent. The question is, what do you do if you, you know, mess up your, your chosen Lenten sacrifice? Is, is that a mortal sin? What are the rules regarding this particularly Catholic practice? Well, um, as I, I think I mentioned last week, or certainly in the Ash Wednesday Show, uh, once upon a time, all Catholics fasted not only all forty days of Lent, but in you know in the Middle Ages, they would actually abstain all forty days as well, essentially becoming vegan for you know six weeks out of the year. And, and you know the forty days being comprised of the weekdays minus the Sundays on which we're not called to fast. So forty days of fasting, forty six days of the Lenten season. Uh, the last two weeks of which are called Passion Tide. And under the current law of the church, we're only obliged to abstain on the Fridays of Lent and to fast on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. So uh, the, that fasting requirement and abstention have been uh, greatly re, uh, reduced. But in keeping with the penitential spirit of the season, it is customary for Catholics to uh, voluntarily make some other 40 day sacrifice. In other words, to give up something for Lent. But, but what happens if you fail in your commitment? For example, is it a, a mortal sin to mess up your Lenten sacrifice? Well, let's take an example. Let's assume you uh, drive through McDonald's and you order a, a Big Mac combo and the person on the speaker says, you know, what do you want to drink with that? And you, your knee-jerk reaction says, well, I'll have a, a Coke. And then uh, halfway through your lunch, you remember, oh no, I gave up soda for Lent. Now, have you committed a mortal sin? Well, in a word, no. In fact, it's not really a sin at all. Uh, Giving up something for Lent is a custom. It's not an obligation like uh, uh, fasting and abstaining on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday or abstaining from meat on the Fridays of Lent. It's voluntary. It doesn't uh, oblige under the pain of sin. It's not a solemn vow. Giving up something for Lent. So although you've made this commitment and you should repent of your negligence, should strive to be more aware and more consciously enter into the Lenten spirit in, in such a way that that's less likely to, to happen again. But let's take another scenario. Uh, what if you're on the way to the office and uh, you didn't take time for breakfast? So you drive through McDonald's and you order a, a sausage McMuffin and a cup of coffee. And you dive into your sandwich right there in the car and you turn on the local Catholic radio station and suddenly realize it's a Friday of Lent. And you're eating meat. Is that a mortal sin? Well, this is more complicated, because abstaining from meat on Fridays of Lent is a precept of the Church, and it does oblige under pain of sin. However, if you genuinely forgot, then it's not uh, necessarily a mortal sin, because we, we know that to be guilty of a mortal sin, three things must be present, right? It must be a grave matter, which it certainly is, but you also have to have sufficient reflection of the mind and the full consent of the will. So if you genuinely forgot, if you just automatically ordered the sandwich you always order, um, you know, uh, you're, you're not really guilty of a mortal sin because you didn't reflect on it, nor did you give your full consent uh, of the will. In other words, mortal sins aren't accidents, okay, <laughs> yeah, but knowingly and intentionally chosen. It'd be different if you went to McDonald's knowing it was Friday and purposely chose to get a Sausage McMuffin in spite of the precept of the church, okay. For you know, uh, uh, and for that you would need to repent and go to confession, because abstaining from meat on Fridays of Lent is a precept of the Church, and it does oblige under pain of sin. Now back to the custom, though, of giving something up for Lent. What if you decided to, I don't know, say give up uh, sweets for Lent, and suddenly say to yourself, I can't stand it anymore. I have to have something sweet, and you know you go to Seven Eleven and you get some Twinkies or you know cupcakes or whatever, and you gobble them up only to feel immediate shame and remorse. (laughs) Now, is that a mortal sin? And again, no, and for the same reasons as above. Your voluntary Lenten observance does not oblige under pain of sin. And by the way, if I seem obsessed with junk food, it's likely because I'm doing the honors program again this year and and fasting all 40 days of Lent. And, you know, last year, I recall, I actually brought this up at RCIA last night, that last year um, our RCIA director had asked me what I had given up for Lent, and I told him that, oh, I'm, you know, I'm actually fasting all 40 days. And then he told me that, that one of our students, actually one of the catechumens, was fasting on bread and water. <laughs> so there's always somebody. Uh, you know, the point is our, our sacrifice is voluntary. So we don't look down our nose at anybody else's sacrifice. And we don't feel guilty if, if we see that somebody is, is, is maybe doing more. And we don't feel any pride over our faithfulness to our personal observance and we see something or someone else fall. Thomas Akempis says in the Imitation of Christ, you may be in a good disposition now, but you do not know how long you will persevere in it. Always keep in mind that all are frail, but none more frail than yourself. You know, we were talking about devotion to our Lord's passion, which uh, the whole of February is dedicated to that. And it is um, encouraged for Lent to meditate on our Lord's passion, particularly Um, or a particularly uh, uh, appropriate devotion for Lent is the Way of the Cross. And uh, many churches will have the Way of the Cross on Fridays. They do it publicly. But you'll notice, though, when you make the Stations of the Cross, three of the stations are occasions when our Lord fell on his way to Calvary. And there's a lesson here for you and I when we pick up our cross to follow him. You see, the fact that we stumble and fall in our observance of the Lenten sacrifice is part of the journey. It is a powerful reminder of our frailty. Our Lord himself said, Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation, for the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Further, as I've mentioned on this program, the poverty of spirit that is mentioned by Jesus in the first beatitude is all about the recognition that without Jesus... We can do nothing, as he said in, in John 15. So while accidents are not mortal sins, uh, and giving up something for Lent doesn't oblige under the pain of sin, if you find yourself forgetting your Lenten sacrifice, um, your, your, your Lenten obligation, your own voluntary sacrifices, you probably want to bring this to a priest in the sacrament of confession, just as you would if you were to find yourself you know, uh, frequently committing any kind of venal, venial sin. Um, you know, it, it was something you would want to address in the confessional. Why? Because, because faults lead to little sins and little sins lead to bigger ones. And purging ourselves of sin, and especially our attachment to sin, uh, even venial sins, is the whole point of mortification. It's like what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I chastise my body and bring it into subjection, lest perhaps when I have preached to others, I myself should become a castaway. You know, the, the, the pastoral statement on penance and abstinence was actually issued by what was at the time called the National Conference of Catholic Bishops in the United States back in November of 1966, so this is even four years before the introduction of the new Mass, a year after Vatican II. It's still uh, in force. It goes over all the new rules for Lent. You can find it on the bishop's website. You can go to usccb.org and search for the pastoral statement on penance and abstinence. Uh, And there's a lot about the voluntary aspect of uh, penance and mortification. But in that, you know, kind of typically verbose uh, way of modern church documents, it actually encourages three traditional practices that are, quote, to be taken up with renewed vigor, unquote, during Lent, namely prayer and almsgiving in addition to fasting. Sometimes known as the three pillars of Lent, these practices fall under the cardinal virtue of justice, that is, what we owe to others. So prayer is a matter of justice towards God. Almsgiving is a matter of justice towards our neighbor, especially the poor, and and fasting is a matter of justice towards yourself. You know, and that's it. You owe it to yourself to practice penance and mortification. Now, I mentioned the Stations of the Cross is one of my favorite devotions, uh, really all year not just at Lent. And the tenth station is Jesus is stripped of his garments. Now, if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, and I'm assuming you probably have, you know just how grievously wounded our Lord was in his scourging at the pillar. And then his robe was placed back on him when he carried the cross, right? So the blood that was, you know, being shed from his wounds of his scourging would have dried, and stuck to the cloth. So when the soldiers stripped him of his garments, that brutally reopened all of those wounds. So we practice mortification in order to strip ourselves of sin, so that Jesus might clothe us in holiness. Now, as Jesus, you know, was stripped of his garments, it should be of no uh, uh, comes no surprise to us that stripping ourselves. Of, of our sinful practices is painful. It hurts to sacrifice all your unlawful attachments, but it's necessary for our sanctification. And that's no nonsense. Uh, we're also going to talk about sacramentals and indulgences, uh, you know, uh, because if the point of Lent is to grow in holiness, uh, the point of growing in holiness is to become a saint. And thankfully, the church offers us, uh, as Father Paul O'Sullivan, we read from his book, How to Be uh, the Easy Way to Become a Saint, last week. And he said the church offers us, quote, many infallible means of doing just that. So I want to take some time uh, in the next segment and in the last uh, remaining minutes of this one to talk about two of those means, namely indulgences and the good use of sacramentals. You know, as a Catholic, you know that there's punishment due for sin, eternal punishment for mortal sin, and temporal punishment, that is uh, temporal, right? This is where we get the word temporary, so it means in time. Temporal punishment for venial sins and, and for mortal sins that have been forgiven in confession. And why is that? Well, you know, you can think of it like a child who's been told not to play ball in the house, you know, and he breaks the rule and breaks a window, he goes to his father and confesses the father forgives him, but he still wants to make that child pay for the damage, either, you know, paying for it out of his own pocket or doing some extra chores or something. That's that temporal punishment due for sin. And what indulgences and sacramentals have to do with that, we'll find out in just a minute. So stay with us right here on No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back. Uh, talking about sacramentals and indulgences, okay? Uh, we know that there's temporal punishment due for sin. Talked about that before the break. And when you, that's why when you go to confession, the priest gives you a penance, also known as a satisfaction. Typically, some prayers to say, or right? I'd say, okay, say an Our Father and three Hail Marys. Now, that penance is a way for you to help uh, satisfy for the temporal punishment due for your sins, and uh, one of the best ways that we can satisfy for the temporal punishment due for our sins is to gain an indulgence. Now, there's so much misinformation about indulgences, a lot of it uh, from our Protestant friends going all the way back to Luther. And, and so it's probably well to start with what an indulgent is not. Because, you know, even though, as I've often said, there's more access to more good uh, information about Catholicism than ever before, you know, the Bible, the Catechism. The uh, decisions of the, ma- the documents of the major councils, all this stuff, it's all online for free in virtually every known language, you know. Um, so you don't need to be ignorant of these things or confused about them. But uh, like I say, because the confusion is there, we should really start with what an indulgent indulgence isn't. And I've taken this from the old Catholic encyclopedia from 1914 because guess what? It hasn't changed. Um an indulgence is not a permission to commit sin; it is not a pardon for uh, of future sin. Neither could be granted by any power. So, if people say that you're that you're, you know, that you buy an indulgence so that you can commit a sin, then well, that's that's silly. Uh, it says it is not the forgiveness of the guilt of sin. No, nope, you you don't you're not paying for the forgiveness of sins, right? And of course, this well, I, I keep using the word paying because uh, Luther charged that indulgences were these things and that they were being sold, right? Which is, uh, if that was happening at any point, it would have been a a horrible abuse and was taken care of at the Council of Trent. Anyway, uh, so uh, it's not the forgiveness of the guilt of sin. In fact, it presupposes that your sins have already been forgiven and that you're in a state of grace. It is not an exemption from any law or duty much less from the obligation consequent on certain kinds of sin, for example, restitution, right? If you steal something, you have to give money back. You can't uh, get out of that by gaining an indulgence. On the contrary, it means a more complete payment of the debt which the sinner owes to God. It does not confer immunity from temptation or remove the possibility of subsequent lapses into sin. Least of all is an indulgence, the purchase of a pardon which secures the buyer's salvation or releases the soul of another from purgatory. And these were specific charges that Luther made. The absurdity of such notions must be obvious to anyone who forms a correct idea of what the Catholic Church actually teaches on this subject. Okay, so what is that? That an indulgence is the remission of some or all of the temporal punishment due to our sins outside the sacrament of penance. There's two kinds of indulgences, plenary and partial. A plenary indulgence is the full remission of all the temporal punishment due for our sins. A partial indulgence is the remission of a part of the temporal punishment due for our sins. Now, how is it that the church can grant these indulgences? Well, our Lord Jesus Christ uh, conferred the power to grant indulgences upon the church when he said to St. Peter, I will give thee the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind upon earth shall be bound also in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose upon earth, it shall be loosed in heaven. So the Church grants indulgences from the great treasury of the infinite merits of Jesus Christ and the superabundant merits of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the saints. Indulgences, therefore, differ from other works of penance. Again, the Old Catholic Encyclopedia says, "...the satisfaction, usually called penance, imposed by the confessor when he gives absolution, is an integral part of the sacrament of penance." A indulgence, an indulgence is extra sacramental and presupposes the effects obtained by confession, contrition, and sacramental uh, satisfaction. So in other words, before, you need to be in a state of grace before you go seeking an indulgence, right? Or in order to seek an indulgence, you need to have gone to confession, you need to be, be contrived for your sins, you need to be absolved of your sins, you need to have done the penance that was imposed upon you by the priest, right? So you're not getting out of any of that. It differs also, it says, from the penitential works undertaken of his own accord by the repentant sinner. In other words, your prayers, your fasting, your almsgiving, right? These are personal, it says, and get their value from the merit of the one who performs them. Whereas an indulgence places at the penitent's disposal the merits of Christ and the saints, which form the treasury of the church. So an indulgence applies uh, their merits to your debt of temporal punishment, So to gain an indulgence, it's necessary to be in the state of grace. Make the intention to gain it and to fulfill the conditions prescribed. First, you have to be in a state of grace because indulgences only remit the punishment of venial sins or mortal sins that have already been confessed. Indulgences, one more time, it's not a substitute for confession. Next, you have to make the intention to gain the indulgence. And uh, the simplest way to, to ensure that is to make the intention part of your morning offering. I desire to gain all the indulgences attached to the prayers I shall say and the good works I shall perform this day. Amen. I say that every single day. And then lastly, you have to fulfill the prescribed conditions. Now that's simplest when we're talking about partial indulgences. For example, if you're in a state of great... Well, first, I want to say a word about partial indulgences. Partial or plenary, right? Some of the remit, some of the punishment or all of the punishment. Uh, In days gone by, in... uh, partial indulgences would be described as, you know, as, as being equal to, you know, it's you get 30 days indulgence or you get uh, uh, seven quarantines or, you know, whatever. It's like, well, what is that? <clears throat> and what it, what it, people made the uh, mistake of saying, oh, it's 30 days indulgence or seven days indulgence, seven years indulgence. That means um, that's the time that you get off of purgatory for doing this, and that's not it. What they're saying is that the merits that are applied to your temporal punishment due for your sins would be equal to you doing personal penance for 30 days or for a quarantine, which is 40 days, or seven quarantines, which is seven times 40 days, right? It, it's like they're saying that this great treasury of merit, that that's the, the the merits that are being applied, are equal to, you know, your personal penance in, in those, uh, you know, uh, amounts. And... The church is, you know, uh, at Vatican II, after Vatican II, they just said, look, from now on, it's just partial or plenary. It's either some of it or all of it. And we're not going to, uh, you know, um, attach a specific amount of of penance, you know, that that, that it represents just partial or plenary. Okay. So, uh, la, la, la. You have to be in a state of grace because they only remit punishment, uh, la, la, la. already said that. Uh, Yeah, partial indulgence. So if you're in a state of grace, you make your intention, you gain a partial indulgence when you pray the rosary, for example. And that becomes plenary if you pray the rosary in public under the usual conditions. Another example, after communion, I always pray the prayer before a crucifix, right? You know, um, oh, kind and most sweet Jesus, I cast myself upon my knees in thy sight, right? That one. Uh, Prayer before a crucifix or prayer to Jesus crucified. Now, I make it a habit to pray this prayer um, always after communion. Uh, And you get a partial indulgence for doing that. But you get a plenary indulgence if you do it on the Fridays of Lent, right? Uh, If you receive communion and piously recite that prayer before an image of Christ crucified. But you'll notice it in your prayer book, it'll say under the usual conditions. So, you know, and that's something you find on holy cards, Plenary indulgence or or a partial indulgence or plenary indulgence under the usual conditions. What are the usual conditions? Well, typically, to gain a plenary indulgence, in addition to the particular conditions of the indulgenced act, right, saying a certain prayer on certain days after communion before an image of Jesus crucified in this case, uh, the following conditions are also necessary. To be in the state of grace, all right? Now, technically, you know, if you, if you look in the catechism, we'll say to be in a state of grace, at least at the time the indulgence work is completed. Because some of the uh, uh, indulgence acts, like making the stations of Rome, it takes several days. So it's sufficient if you make it to confession before you complete it. But if it's a matter of saying a prayer, a rosary, something, you have to be in a state of grace to begin with, right? And that's, that's the point. Uh, to gain the indulgence, you need to be in a state of grace. Um, you have to have the interior disposition to complete... Right. Okay. Wait. Say you need to be in a state of grace, and in addition, you have to have the interior disposition of complete detachment from sin, even venial sin. And then sacramental confession and holy communion. And it's recommended that you receive holy communion uh, while participating in mass. But I mean, the homebound and so forth uh, can't do that. So the the only condition is holy communion. Right. You receive holy communion, and then finally, you pray for the intentions of the Holy Father. Now, according to the Apostolic Penitentiary, it is appropriate but not necessary that sacramental confession and especially Holy Communion and the Prayer for the Pope's Intentions take place on the same day that the indulgence work is performed, but it is sufficient that these sacred rites and prayers be carried out within several days, about 20 before or after the indulgenced Act. Prayer for the Pope's Intentions is left to the choice of the faithful, but an Our Father and Hail Mary is recommended. Uh, one sacramental confession suffices for several plenary indulgences, but a separate holy communion and a separate prayer for the uh, holy father's intentions are required to gain each plenary indulgence. Now, for the sake of those who are legitimately impeded, uh, confessors can commute both the work prescribed and the conditions required, except for the attachment from ven- or detachment from venial sin, even venial sin. Now, that might seem to be the most difficult part of the usual conditions detachment from all sin even venial sin but consider this the church would not um, offer the faithful something that's impossible to attain and consider what it's not you know the requirement is not freedom from all sin because we're sinners you know we all we all sin it's not freedom from sin but freedom from the attachment to sin and what does that mean Detachment from all even venial sins means that there is no sin that you are unwilling to renounce. You should be able to tell if you're fulfilling this condition, okay? You know, what is called an attachment to sin is a refusal to amend a situation because maybe deep down you don't want to let go of a particular sin. You know, gossiping, overeating, whatever it is. But this is different from just normal weakness or the situation where somebody falls into the same sin many times before finally overcoming it. And you should be able uh, to tell if you have such an attachment. Christian penance is above all an interior virtue, an attitude of struggle against sin, and a willingness to be converted. And according to the Church, that is possible to achieve, and that's no nonsense. Hey, more when we come back. Stick with us, No Nonsense Catholic, on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back. Um talking about indulgences, and I wanted to mention, I, I was actually on the Terry and Jesse show today and brought this up, that there is um when you gain indulgences, you may apply them to yourself, or they may be applied to the souls in purgatory, to some specific soul that you uh believe may be in purgatory or to the souls in general, or you know, you can apply it to that soul which is the closest to getting into heaven or the furthest you know, uh, who died, has no one else to pray for them, you know, that kind of thing, you know, so you can apply it to the souls in purgatory generally or to a specific um, one of the holy souls. But they cannot be applied to other living persons, okay? You can't um, do something to remit the temporal punishment for someone else's sins on this earth, right? They're in the church militant, they need to do that for themselves, as opposed to the, the church suffering who are no longer able to. So there is a devotion, talking about indulgences and the holy souls in purgatory, there is a devotion called the heroic act. And that is where you uh, commit to apply all of the indulgences you gain to the souls in purgatory. And the idea being that that when those souls are released from their temporary prison, that they will... Uh, show their gratitude by interceding for you, by interceding for you now, and by interceding for you should you go to purgatory. And, you know, that, that, I think that's a, uh, a great consolation, the, the idea that, that uh, you're avoiding purgatory by gaining every indulgence possible to help other people avoid purgatory. And then you're going to have presumably an army of saints that are interceding for you should you uh, go to purgatory yourself. Uh, So that's a quick guide to indulgences, and and I mentioned in the last segment that a um, uh, related means of growing in holiness, this Lent and all year round, is the use of sacramentals. And simply put, sacramentals are blessings and exorcisms that are used by the church. That is what a sacramental is. And all those things that she blesses and consecrates to religious use are sacramentals. Uh, things are called sacramentals because they resemble, I mean, they're, they're associated with the sacraments. Many of them are used in the administration of the sacraments, right? They consecrate chalices and patents and, and uh, you know, all of the vessels that are used in the Holy Mass are blessed, right? So they become sacramentals. So the sacraments, of course, the seven sacraments we know are visible signs instituted by Christ to give grace, the sacramentals, on the other hand, are instituted by the church. But Jesus clearly sanctioned the use of sacramentals by the many blessings that he bestowed during his earthly ministry, including the many exorcisms that he uh, performed. So, uh, you know, you can think of uh, the uh, purpose of sacramentals being our to increase our devotion and to protect us against the powers of darkness. That's that's their particular use and again you see that in um in the ministry of our lord that it was you know that his blessings were to increase devotion and to protect against the powers of darkness um the church invokes a special blessing upon those who assist at the holy sacrifice of the mass right may the lord bless you in the name of the father son and the holy spirit um at the wedding mass right there is a uh, at the wedding ceremony there's a special blessing of the bride and groom uh, we have anointing the sick, which is a special blessing of the sick and the dying. Uh, they bless the remains of the dead during the funeral mass, and so on and so on. Uh, exorcisms are the church commanding the devil in the name of Jesus Christ to depart from possessed uh, persons or possessed things. There are things that can be possessed. And then the church consecrates certain, well, it consecrates religious men and women. It consecrates the hands of the priest, who is going to uh, perform you know or celebrate the holy mass offer the holy mass uh, the church uh, consecrates churches, chalices, altars, uh, bells, cemeteries, the holy oils right the chrism mass each year uh, she blesses water through the ministry of the priests, candles, uh, crosses, palms, ashes, the vestments that the priests wear, rosaries, scrapulars, prayer books. Uh, you can have your home blessed. And, we, and you know, before we eat, we say the grace before meals, we bless our food. And the thing is, to use those sacramentals with profit, uh, it is, you know, you need to be in the state of sanctifying grace to use them with the greatest profit. Now, speaking of sacramentals, I wear a scapular, I wear a crucifix and some medals uh, that are, you know, my, represent my personal devotions around my neck. Those are all sacramentals because they aren't sacramentals automatically but they're sacramentals because they've been blessed and by the way that's you know my wife uh works sometimes at the gift shop at our local uh, cathedral and uh people will ask they'll bring up a, a rosary or or medals or whatever and say are these blessed and she says no you need to have them blessed by a priest because the point is that selling sacred things is uh called simony it's a sin and should you sell something that's blessed it will lose its blessing and need to be blessed again anyway so obviously they don't sell blessed objects they sell objects that can then be blessed and when they are blessed they become sacramentals so like the rosary for example the prayer of the rosary is itself a sacramental and the beads upon which they we pray the rosary once they're uh, blessed by a priest they become a sacramental also the beads themselves are a sacramental now I think I mentioned before that you can gain an indulgence by praying the, uh, like five decades of the rosary and that's, Oh, you can get a, a partial indulgence because the rosary is a heavily indulgent prayer. Now under the usual conditions though, you can gain a plenary indulgence when you pray the rosary in public. And by the way, you can only gain one indulgence per day, but praying the rosary with your family counts as praying the rosary in public. Now, what that means is if you're in the state of grace, if you're going to confession regularly, if you're receiving Holy Communion daily, if you renounce all sins, even venial ones, and and you pray the daily family rosary, right, the daily rosary with your family, you can gain an indulgence, a plenary indulgence every single day. And as Father O'Sullivan would say, that is a simple, effective, and infallible way to become a saint. And that's no nonsense. And uh, speaking of Father O'Sullivan, we read last week um, from his book, An Easy Way to Become a Saint, talking about devotion to the Passion, which is especially recommended at this uh, holy time of year in the season of Lent. And uh, Father O'Sullivan's little books and booklets have been kind of bestsellers uh, among Catholics for many decades. And he refers to the Passion as, quote, a subject that even the pen of a saint cannot sufficiently describe. And we mentioned last week the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary and how they can be prayed all of the weekdays of Lent and then also the Stations of the Cross. And since we've been talking about indulgences, I remind you it's necessary to, if you want to gain the indulgence for uh, making the Stations, you have to physically go to the church and go from station to station, right? But to make the Stations of the Cross, to do it in spirit, is a fruitful devotion anytime, anywhere. I often do the Stations of the Cross when I'm in line for confession for example uh even though I'm not physically going from one to another maybe I'm not gaining the indulgence but but you know that prayer or I say it uh in the evening uh at home just by myself you know with my, just with my prayer book um so and and it's just a, it's a fruitful devotion and it's a great way to, to meditate on the passion obviously so um last week we mentioned we can honor the passion number 1 by making the sign of the cross slowly and reverently number 2 by repeating often the holy name of jesus by kissing a blessed crucifix, by saying the sorrowful mysteries of the rosary, and by making the way of the cross. Now, Father O'Sullivan says that uh, an excellent and most meritorious way of honoring the Passion is, and this will be number six on our list, offering all of our sufferings, pains, and troubles in union with the sufferings of Jesus. And Terry and I talked about that on the Terry and Jesse show today, that that offering our, our sufferings in union with Jesus um, gives them... Um, an indescribable value and obtains for us the strength and patience that we need to bear them patiently right it's it's easy it's hard to bear up under suffering sometimes but it's certainly easy to say all for you jesus or all for you dear jesus who has suffered so much for me right offer your sufferings with the sufferings of christ um, number seven by studying the passion—that is, say, read some books about the passion, meditate on the passion. I, I would even say watching uh, Mel Gibson's movie is uh, very much uh, a, a meditation on the passion, and was largely taken from the writings of Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich. So it's it's a way that you can, can you know learn about uh, some of the uh, suffering that our Lord underwent. And number eight, I guess this is should be number one is hearing and offering Mass, right? Because that's the best means of honoring the Passion, because the Mass is the Passion. It has the same value. It brings the same uh, uh, graces as the Sacrament of Calvary, because it is the Sacrament of Calvary being made present for us you know, in time. And Father O'Sullivan says it's lamentable to see how few Catholics hear Mass with this intention. He says, during Mass, many do not even think of the Passion. But he reminds us that the Passion isn't an imitation of Calvary, it's the same sacrifice as Calvary, though in an unbloody manner. And uh, so these, this whole list of, of eight things are, are easy uh, and ways of honoring the passion, and as he would say, easy and infallible means of growing in holiness. So uh, he gives a couple some quotes from the saints that uh, many saints say that five minutes prayer and honor the passion is of greater value than many hours spent in other devotions. St. Alphonsus says that all the saints became saints by devotion to the passion, and that there was never a saint who did not have great love for the passion. Devotion to the passion gives intense pleasure to our Lord, he says, and want of devotion to the passion wounds his sacred heart most deeply. Uh, you knew I wasn't going to make it through an hour without mentioning Bernard of Clairvaux, right? The great St. Bernard. Uh, our Lord himself spoke to St. Bernard and said, I will remit all the venial sins, and I will no more think of the mortal sins of those who honor the grievous wound on my right shoulder, which caused me unutterable pain when bearing my heavy cross to Calvary. right He has Saint Bernard is responsible for devotion to the shoulder wound of Christ. and we honor that wound especially by saying the fourth sorrowful mystery of the Rosary, Jesus carries his cross. And then our Lord promised to Saint Gertrude that he would protect most especially in the judgment, Those who make loving reparation to him for the insults, outrages, and blasphemies heaped on him in his passion. And we can do that by offering uh, to our Lord all the offenses, slights, and humiliations that we may have to bear, and through special devotions like devotion to the Holy Face. Finally, our Lord said to St. MacTilde, those who thank me for the awful thirst which I endured in my passion, I will reward as if they had assuaged my thirst on the cross. And those who thank me for having been nailed to the cross for love of them, I will reward as if they had taken me down from the cross. And we can do that by saying the fifth sorrowful mystery of the rosary. The church has given us access to this great treasury of grace. What a shame that there are so many who do not know or do not understand or do not and understand and do not take advantage. And uh, we want to make sure that that's not you and that's not me and that's no nonsense. All right. Look forward to doing it all again next week. In the meantime, may God richly bless you and your family.